Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Skirt, a real horror show. I'm your host, John, and this is a special episode. It's one I've been looking forward to. If you've paid attention to the show and you've listened to it all along, you know that I've mentioned the author Sarah Reed a couple of times. I keep bringing her up as someone whose stories are burrowing into my consciousness, and I thought it would be fun to return the favor and burrow right back into her consciousness. And so that's what we do. She's the author of a novel called The Bone Weaver's Orchard, as well as a short story collection called Out of Water that I have read twice and love. I really don't want to say much more before we get started, except to say that this will be the last episode of Skirt for a while. I think we'll be back. I have a few ideas of things I'd like to do, but a lot of it depends on you. So let me know if you like this show, um, if there's authors you'd like to hear talked about or talked to, or if you are an author or or if you know authors, find a way to let me know, either on Twitter or Instagram uh, at G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. Or um, you can find us on Facebook at F-Y-I-Z Podcast by John. And that's really all I want to say. Now let's get into the weird and wonderful mind of Sarah Reed. One thing about your short stories is there always seems to be a story behind the story. There's a, there's a lot of world building. Um, do you ever think about returning to some of those ideas and expanding on them? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I do that a lot. In fact, I have um, two short stories I'm expanding into either novels or novellas right now. And usually I realize that, you know, in time that I just won't submit it as a short story. You know, I'll just file it away and, you know, for say, okay, later I'm going to expand on this. But every now and then there is a published short story I have where I, I want to revisit it and, um, and use that same world or those same characters again in some way. Like one of your stories that springs to mind, Crosswind, uh, which is about a man who uh, encounters and, and tangles with um, a I guess we'll call it an elemental being. It has this whole mythology behind it that is just hinted at in the story, but um, it really places it much more in the vein of, of like a dark fantasy um, as opposed to straight horror. Yeah, that one skews definitely into into the dark fantasy realm for, for me anyway, as I was writing it, it. It was different from my more straight up horror tone. And that's not one where I have thought about <laughs> expanding the mythology at all. Um, but I'm sure just talking about it in that regard will probably set some sort of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> wheel spinning in the back of my mind for long, but <laughs> was that important to you with the collection that it reflect a lot of different styles, a lot of different things? Yeah. I wanted it to be more comprehensive of the different styles I like to write. Um, I know that typically with a collection, people look for more, um, synchronous type tones and things like that so that there's a, a a similar feel throughout the book but i wanted something that was more across the spectrum do you have any particular favorites or is was that is is that a horrible question to ask <laughs> well endoskeletal is is probably one of my favorites yeah i think that's if i had to pick one that would probably be the one i would say her rapid breath flowed back at her in the confines of the outer skull her vision narrowed to the width of a single finger. She reached through the small hole and tried to pull at the bone to break herself free. The skull mask clamped shut on her fingertip, growing over it 
trapping it, shutting out all but a little light. She screamed inside her skull, and the sound bounced around her ears. The expanding lattice of her ribcage lifted her off the floor. I mean, Indoskeletal has some pretty gnarly uh, uh, body horror in it. Um, is body horror something that you enjoy as a genre? I noticed a lot of your stories have some element of that. Um, and, and, and do you ever get a reaction from somebody where they read one of your stories and say, you know, uh, oh my God, how did you come up with this? Yeah, I mean, I body horror for me, I, I enjoy it. I love writing it. I love writing it even more than I love reading it. Yeah. I don't necessarily like it in movies, um, but yeah. yeah, it's it's something that I don't usually realize I'm doing as I'm writing it. You know, there are, are a few body horror moments in my novel too, and I didn't really think of them as me writing a body horror scene. I thought of it as, well, this is what happens next in the book, right? mm-hmm. <laughs> and then. <laughs> It'll be someone reading it who goes, geez, Sarah. And then I'm like, oh, right, right. Yeah, that gets a little bit sticky there, doesn't it? Well, in some ways, if it's not a little sticky, it's it's not horror, you know? I mean, yeah. you can have horror that avoids uh, uh, that kind of gruesome stuff. Maybe some people like to read something that's horror and and imagine they're not reading horror. Yeah, I would really like to destigmatize the word horror. I think people think somehow it cheapens what they've written and so they avoid it. But no, it's it's all horror. Even though people tell me all the time, people will read my work and say, oh, but it's not horror. And I say, well, yes, it is. And sometimes they'll say, well, why do you think it's horror? And sometimes I'm just like, because I said so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> no one's more expert on this than I am. And I say it is. Because I was feeling kind of horror-y when I wrote it. Yeah. And it, and, and that's that's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's that was my intent. <laughs> when did you become a fan of of horror, and and when did you think, hey, maybe I could write some of this stuff? Well, uh, I mean, I've always always been into horror. I was born with the bug. Um, I, even my children's picture books were <laughs> about haunted houses, and you know, <laughs> I had all the Halloween books, and those were my everyday books, as they still are. And I started really, really writing horror stories in fifth grade. I even would submit a few things back then, but I didn't come after writing as a like, okay, I'm really going to do this for real now sort of thing until about 2013 or 2014. Um, And actually Underwater Thing is the oldest story in this book. I wrote that when I was in college. We won't need to say how long ago. (laughs) That was a very long time ago. Um, (laughs) And I filed it away because I didn't know how to write yet. And I knew that. And so I held on to it because I still thought there was something there. It wasn't until we were actually already doing the layout for the collection where I talked to my editor and I said, you know, I have this one other story that is actually the theme for the book. Like the rest of the stories almost kind of creep out of that one. Um, And it was also part of the title the original title for the book was underwater things out of water Ooh, i like that i mean i like i like the the sort of uh openness of the title you have but i think what you just said was is one of those cool like hair stands up on the back of my neck when i (laughs) when i hear that phrase (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i shortened it for practical reasons to just out of water have you seen those pictures of those deep sea creatures they find sometimes next to some vent of with with toxic chemicals that they breathe and they bring it up yeah. and by the time they br- like it's it's in the water it has like a shape to it and it can move around but when they bring it up it just looks like slime with a couple of eyes on it yeah <laughs> yep 
but yeah, it was about uh, the first the first one that I ever had published after I committed myself to pursuing this was the eye liars. Oh yeah. That's the first story I actually like sold to an editor. How exciting was that when, when that happened? I always think that would be such a thrill. It was. Yeah. And I was actually, I was taking a writing class um, with Richard Thomas on lit reactor. And that was my story I wrote for the class. And he, after the class was over, he sent me a message and asked if he could have it for an anthology he was putting together. And I was like, are you kidding me? Oh, cool. <laughs> and until that point, I hadn't ever really felt ready to submit things. But after that, it gave me the confidence to like, like okay, maybe people will want to read what I write. So I started submitting after that. And have you written consistently since then? Or was there ever a time when you put it down? I always have kept journals of story ideas, even when I was not writing. There were definitely um, you know, parts of time in my life where I wasn't writing that much. Um, and you know, through my undergraduate, I didn't, you know, I wrote a few things. I wrote um, underwater thing. And I wrote another story called Pelts that I'm actually trying to revive also. Um, and those were the, my two big things I wrote in college. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. That was it. Two short stories. But I was a double major. And at the end of college, I had my first child. So I was a little busy. Um, and then I did work as a librarian, library assistant for a little while. And then got a job in publishing for a little while. And it was while I was working in, in publishing for a, a magazine, nonfiction magazine publisher, that you know, my as my my first child got older, you know, and he would, you know, start sleeping at night and things like that <laughs> and entertaining himself, that I used my free time to start writing again. That's when I, I think I started to finally actually develop my voice and and figure out where I fit into. I mean, I always knew it was going to be horror, but you know, when you're outside of the horror world, sometimes you don't know where you fit into it. <laughs> you know, there was so many different kinds of horror, and there was definitely some of it I didn't like, and I didn't, but I didn't really know enough to know where I fit in yet. So there was a lot of reading and a lot of writing, and I spent a lot of time on Lit Reactor in the forums and in the classes and the workshops and meeting people and meeting other writers and reading their work and finally kind of found my home, <laughs> which was a process, but a very important one. How do your reading habits and your writing habits interact? Like, do you find yourself uh, reading stuff that's similar to what you want to do or do you try to avoid that? And and do you ever go periscope down? I'm, I'm writing. I can't have other ideas. Or do you like to like, if I'm writing about an idea, I, I need to know, I need to know everything that's being done about that idea so that I don't overlap with something else. Like how do those two things, you know, the, the reading and the writing interact? Oh, I'm definitely someone who feels like I need to know everything about what I'm writing. So mm -hmm. I will seek out similar titles and read them all. Um, fiction and nonfiction. I will research to the ends of the earth. Um, it's I research to a fault and I know that I research too much, but I love it so much I wouldn't give it up anyway. It's like if I'm having fun doing it, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's all supposed to be fun. But I guess the worry would be that if you get all these other ideas in your head, they'll infect your idea and it'll it'll uh, mutate into something derivative. But it, it seems to me like it'll just make it stronger uh, that that you you'll know where where your concept fits in with 
the landscape of things that might be similar to it. And you also can steer away from those things to make it a much more interesting work. Yeah, I don't I don't worry too much about, you know, reading something that will infect my work or anything like that. You know, I, um, you know, I think it's all useful information and mm-hmm. definitely like even if it's a story that's already been told, I mean, how how many different versions of Cinderella are there? And each one is unique, you know, so it's, you know, I don't feel like that that's a problem, at least not for me. I mean, I know for some, some writers, definitely, if they're writing something, they find reading something too similar to be distracting. And I could definitely see that. I find it more enriching than distracting for me though. Do you tend to start with an idea of what you want to do and then do a lot of research and then write the idea? Or do you write the idea as you know it and then sort of glean what areas of interest you need to pursue in your research to to fill in certain gaps in the story? Sometimes it's both. You know, sometimes I just sit down and write something and it's, you know, some past research that I use and I don't, you know, spend any new time on it. But a lot of times, yeah, it's, I, I definitely want that veracity and um, for something to feel real. I mean, the trick is knowing how much detail is too much detail, you know, especially you know, in my novels, I write historical horror. So, you know, there's only so many details you want to give someone before they're like, get on with the story. You don't have to talk about the light fixtures for that long. You know, so it's just knowing where to stop. Like, I want to know everything about them, but I recognize that the reader does not. <laughs> I think there's a difference between the um, uh, that kind of flowery exposition and and just laying in details to provide pace and atmosphere. Because oh, yeah. I actually think horror benefits from those moments where nothing seems to be happening, and and you're just you're setting the table for what's going to happen, and you know you're giving someone a, a sense of all these physical details. Um, often it makes whatever uh, the culmination of the story is, it makes it much more uh, relatable. Yeah, I really do like that kind of um, deliberate kind of. I want to I want to pace the reaction the reader has to this kind of unfolding uncanniness <laughs> throughout the story. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's something I try and be, you know, fairly intentional <laughs> about as far as setting clues down. And that's something that kind of I, works into my writing process where um, I write my first drafts, I call them more zero drafts than first drafts because they're very lean and they don't have a lot of detail. There might not even be that much characterization yet it's it's pretty skeletal and then i go back through it and add and add and add and add so i i when i'm editing i don't i almost never cut anything i'm always adding something mm-hmm. so which is the opposite of what a lot of writers do but when i'm going back and adding those layers i'm also planting those clues i'm putting hints here and there throughout the piece so that uh, hopefully the reader will kind of slowly start to put those clues together and have that kind of oh shit moment at some point. Um, that's my goal <laughs> generally is, is to have one of those moments somewhere. You know, that's where beta readers for me are essential because um, I already know what's happening. So I, I tend to sometimes make things too subtle and I need I need my test readers to say, nope, I you know, still not there, not following you. You need a few more things. And, and so that's really, you know, and that's when another layer goes on and then, you know, okay, how about now? Like, 
one more. Okay, how about now? Like, <laughs> uh-huh, there you are. And I have a story coming out uh, in Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year, Volume 12. And it's called The Hope Chest. And I think it's my favorite story I've written to date. Partly because I let myself be too subtle this time. Because normally I'm always told not to do that. I'm told over and over and over again not to do that. But this time when I was doing my layers and my edits and everything, I was like, you know, this is where I want it to be. And I send it to a bunch of of my test reader friends and my critique group and everything. And exactly 50% of them understood what was actually happening in the story. But I also tried to make it so that the story still works even if you don't know what's actually going on in the story and I feel like that's exactly the happy place where I want to be (laughs) where people are going to enjoy reading the story as it is I hope but there is a whole lot more going on here for someone who is really picking up what I'm putting down here (laughs) like there's another story just under the surface and that's where I like to live in that kind of line where is this weird fiction or is this horror fiction it's definitely weird horror fiction right but you never quite get to settle on one side of the line or the other you're always kind of walking that tightrope i like to do a little extra work as a reader or you know even when i'm watching movies i like putting the puzzles together and so i like making my readers do a little extra work too to put the pieces together and there i can think of a number of times when a story or a movie was ruined for me because you know after i figured it out then they explained it to me yeah you know for my uh, this might be well no it's not too spoilery like for for an example for me would be the movie hereditary i loved it until the last like what 5 minutes and then i was like yeah yeah we got all this already like you don't have to hammer it home <laughs> you know and that the final images for me were um, superfluous. And I thought for me kind of took me from, wow, that was a really good movie to, yeah, it was, it was good. <laughs> well, while I happen to really love hereditary, even some aspects of the ending, um, I, I totally get that criticism and I have definitely had things spoiled for me by, um, uh, just having the ambiguity, uh, snuffed out yeah. at the end. I like to think that there is an answer and they have it worked out, but I don't, I don't need it explained to me. Yeah. So while it is a matter of preference, it is also a matter of just how much do you trust your audience? Yeah. And I still felt unsure about that upcoming story because yeah, I mean, my, a lot of my critique partners were like, no, don't leave it so ambiguous, you know, definitely, you know, give us enough that we can put it together easily. Um, and I definitely questioned myself, even though I decided to, to not listen (laughs) and, (laughs) and send it out, (laughs) you know, I wondered like, am I making a mistake here? Um, but you know, but then when Ellen liked it, I mean, that's my barometer right there. And I kind of feel now like I've been given permission to do this more often. So (laughs) I'll probably be annoying a lot of my, my beta readers in the future with, subtle stories. (laughs) (laughs) Who were some of the writers that inspired you uh, when you were growing up, uh, both in terms of horror and otherwise? Well, I mean, from an early age, I was very into um, some gothic classics. My my grandmother was a big reader and she was an avid fan of the Brontes. And so she raised me on the Brontes. (laughs) So Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights were, I mean, we read those together. I don't I don't even know how many times in my childhood. And 
she collected different editions of the book. And when she would get a different edition, she would read it again. And so, um, and, you know, Little Women, and which isn't gothic, but, I mean, I could talk all day about where that fits into. Well, at least talk a couple minutes about it. Um, how is uh, Little Women a, a gateway drug to uh, true horror? <laughs> well, I talk about it a bit in, in a lecture I have that's called Horror is Everywhere. And it's, it's about how you can read widely and enjoy the horror in books that are not horror books because horror is everywhere and transcends genre, really. And so there are some definite moments in Little Women that you know, bring about horror. There's this tension in the family. There's this extreme poverty. You know, there are families that they're caring for who are, you know, the children are dying from disease and poverty. And there's the civil war going on and, you know, will their father come home or not? I guess I don't have to give a spoiler alert for a book this old, but you know, when, <laughs> when Beth dies, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's horror in this book. They're just moments. It's the book itself is not horror, but there is horror in it. Absolutely. And, you know, as a child reading these books, like those are the moments that stuck with me because I was a dark, twisted little thing. Present. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, The Secret Garden is just such a perfectly gothic children's book. Like it's, I love that book. And it's, you know, those moments of Mary Lennox wandering the halls because she hears someone crying and she's just looking, you know, is it a ghost? Is it a person? There's not supposed to be anyone else here. Why do I hear someone crying? You know, and finding secret passages. I mean, for goodness sake, it doesn't get any better than that. Mm -hmm. Just coming into sixth grade, the summer between fifth and sixth grade is when I found Anne Rice. And, um, you know, somewhere around the, you know, early to mid nineties. And my grandma would buy me any book I wanted and I always wanted a book. So, I mean, when we would go to the grocery store together on the weekends, I would, you know, just grab a spooky looking book from the grocery store checkout, you know, like every time that was just, it was on the list every mm -hmm. week. <laughs> and um, Interview with the Vampire was there. And I think the movie was just about to come out maybe or something. And that's why the book had suddenly become so, uh, you know, well, at the grocery store checkout. Right. And, <laughs> and so I grabbed it and just absolutely fell in love. And I just tore through everything she had ever written over the course of the next year. And again, it was, you know, a lot of historical, a lot of gothic, but also with that kind of contemporary twist to it, too, that made it feel so real. And I particularly love her her witching hour trilogy the mayfair witches those i think are her best uh, at least for me as far as what i enjoy and that obsession <laughs> lasted well i mean it's over but not really you know it's such a part of my foundation that i still i still buy her books and read them some people are just you're going to do that you know like they yeah. would have to really they would have to really jk rolling it up before you might say <laughs> all right i'm going to stop reading this writer i'm not going to support them anymore but you just sort of i mean i know people that are like that with stephen king it's almost comfort food of a sort it is yeah i don't enjoy them as much and as i used to and they have changed her books um you know i don't get the same feeling from them that I did as a child but it, yeah it is it is like it's like you know 
going home for a vacation. You know? <laughs> I, th- I always think of it like an album by an artist that I like and I hear their voice and it just those endorphins go off and it's like it doesn't have to be their best album. It's just the latest missive from somebody who until they really start flying off the rails, I'm going to be glad that they're still doing stuff. Exactly. You talk about being that age, being into horror so early. I was really into horror, but I was also a really hokey kid in that you could tell me a ghost story. I would beg you to tell me a ghost story. And then I would I would hear it and I wouldn't sleep for a month. <laughs> um, so my parents really wouldn't let me read scary books, but I was fascinated with it. And there was a girl in my seventh grade class who I guess her parents read Stephen King and the books were just always around. And she was reading them. And I would call her. And she would read Stephen King short stories to me over the phone. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's how curious about it I was without uh, without really, you know, being able to handle it, supposedly. And I think when I was in eighth grade, after I saw The Shining, is when I started checking books out from the library and, and kind of getting into, you know, facing whatever it was that I was afraid of about horror. Do you ever get a sense of, of just freaking people out like that? And, and um, All the time. <laughs> it almost seems like leading a double life. Almost entirely. Because, I mean, I am... Um, you know, matronly little children's library. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's like, you wrote what? I get it constantly, especially from my dad. Uh, you know, every time that I have something else comes out, he just says, I can't believe my little girl. <laughs> you know, and he just never even finishes the sentence. I go from my day job where I'm, you know, singing songs about fairies and reading picture books to coming home and melting somebody's face. I don't look like a horror writer, I guess. And I'm cheerful and chipper and I'm always smiling. I was definitely had my uh, my goth phase in school, though. Mm-hmm. Through junior high and high school, it was... I looked more like a horror writer then than I do now. <laughs> I never really read Anne Rice extensively, but I do remember of her work that it was very um, sensuous in a way, or, or mm-hmm. if not outright erotic. Oh, outright, yeah. We could say outright. <laughs> And I do sense, uh, particularly more on the sensual than the erotic side, but I do sense that being something in your writing that seems yeah. to be yet another thing that is layered in there oftentimes is when someone's transforming into something horrible in your stories, it it seems like maybe there's a part of them that is being set free uh, as much yeah. as being punished, maybe. Yeah, and I, I definitely, you know, I, I want even my body horror to be poetic. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it is something that I, that I do try for. Which sometimes, you know, people don't enjoy. You know, I've um, I've sometimes been told my writing is too lyrical. <laughs> it's like, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work for everyone. That's for certain, and nothing does. But, um, but yeah, it is something that I enjoy in my writing. And you know, Anne Rice is another one of those obsessive researchers. You know, she talks about it often. How much research she does. She even has hired staff as researchers, and. Um, and she, you know, puts a lot of it in the book. You know, she is someone who is a great example who can write a, a good book, but with probably too much detail. And I loved it. <laughs> well, I love the poeticism in, in your writing. So I don't think you could be too lyrical for me. But before we move on to talking about some of the individual stories in more detail, I, I did want to say of your collection that I really liked the flow of it. And it's just something I've always wanted to ask somebody. What kind of thought went into the sequencing of the stories in uh, Out of Water. Putting the stories in order is always a really daunting task um, because I've edited a number of anthologies too where I've 
that's been, you know, my job <laughs> is to put them in order. And, um, you know, there's a formula that, you know, they say, you know, is, is what works as far as, you know, where you put your strongest pieces and all that. But for this, for this book, what I really wanted to do, because, um, you know, breaking all the rules again, is uh, I wanted to have almost, I, I wanted a thread to run through them but they're not all going to relate to one another. So instead it's one story might have a theme or a symbol or a character that relates to the theme, symbol or character in the next story. And then the one after that relates to the one before it. And so it did kind of end up grouping similar stories together, but I really wanted there to be that path through the book. So instead of feeling like it was, you know, just a shuffled deck of stories that there was some sort of, you know, as if you're walking through the woods following the breadcrumbs. For anyone listening, this is where we're going to get a bit more spoilery in our discussion. We're just going to talk about some stories, specific questions I have. But this is kind of like the, uh, you know, the magical decoder ring section of the of the podcast. One of the first stories that I, I just have a fundamental question about, and I don't think we have to get too much into the nitty gritty of the plot of this. But to say that in the story Dead Man's Curve, there is a, um, a Winnebago that... Uh, seems to be either in two places at once or there's a time jump and I'm I'm kind of racking my brain about it but why rack my brain when when I can rack your brain um, uh, <laughs> help me understand dead man's curve well the trick to dead man's curve is that it's a ghost story mm-hmm and but it never admits that it's a ghost story <laughs> uh, because it's from the point of view of someone who is completely unwilling to accept that it's a ghost story. Um, So yeah, that time jump is not, it's not really a time jump. It's the point where we see that this thing exists in two places at once, once where it settled, but it didn't stay settled. Another story where somebody or something exists in two states uh, simultaneously, in a way, is an um, underwater thing. Oh, yes, yes. In which a person who we know to be dead returns. And so we, we kind of have this thing of, like, we, we know there's a corpse. And we also see that she exists as a tangible being, this Mandy, who's been murdered um, and returns to torment her her murderer, even though he's a very unsympathetic character, we are sort of thrust into his mental dilemma of just like how how reality breaking it is for him to be like, well, I killed her um, and here she is. I, I was toying too with keeping it ambiguous. You know, is this a ghost story or is this a monster story? And if it's a monster story, which one of them is the monster? It was a straight up revenge story. Um, I didn't intend for there to be any ambiguity about whether or not he deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good job because there's not. But there is a nice mix across the collection of, of 
you know, protagonists with uh, with comeuppances that that may or may not match something they've done. Right. Yes. Yes. No. Yeah. Like an endoskeletal. I don't feel like she deserved what she had coming. <laughs> Well, just it's that it's that thing of being curious. They don't have to make a bad decision or an evil decision uh, in order to for this to happen to them. That's that cosmic mm-hmm. aspect of it. Yeah, the universe is indifferent. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the characters in your stories, when they wrestle with those cosmic themes, they sort of have the option, at least in some of the stories, of of accepting and possibly elevating themselves. Right. Well, I mean, transformation is a big theme throughout. And, you know, whether that's coming of age, becoming a monster or <laughs> something mm-hmm. else, you know, and um, it's uh, sometimes transformation destroys you and sometimes it makes you better. And so I definitely play with that back and forth a lot throughout all my stories. Another story that really uh, hit me pretty hard was uh, The Eyes of Salton Sea, in which a brother and a sister are, are, are running a hotel or a boarding house uh, in, in what could be a dystopia. It's on this dead beach that's that's jagged and will hurt your feet if you walk across it. And these kind of ne'er-do-wells showing up. Um, this story really kept me on my toes in terms of trying to figure out what, what this backdrop is. The Eyes of Salt and Sea was kind of inspired by me just thinking about these... Um... You know, in the passage of time, these inland seas that have come and gone across our continent and mm-hmm. what they leave behind. And, you know, when they come back, then what do they cover up? So those we're allowed to be spoilery in this section, right? If I understood you. Yes. OK, good. <laughs> so those um, those things under the water that the siblings are finding, you know, um, they're from. You know these big shipwrecks but you know at the time when they live the sea is this small receding thing you know it's going back into vanishing and as it pulls back it reveals more and more of what used to be you know on the this vast sea um because there are places in the world where there are shipwrecks in the middle of deserts and it's like what's going on here and it turns out you know just 500 years ago, there was water here. Yeah. And a ship that was exploring, you know, went upstream, found this sea, didn't make it back. <laughs> and uh, so it, it that just fascinates me, that kind of um, the way time can affect the landscape that way. And the Salton Sea is a real place. Yes. Um, yeah. So that, and it's, you know, an old resort town. And I thought, well, you know, what, what if you were living in this recently abandoned, slowly dying resort town where there's still a few stragglers hanging on there, but for the most part, it's time is done. And this receding and advancing sea, what if we sped up that time scale? You know, what if these seas could come and go, not over the course of centuries, but you know, more rapidly than that? And so it was just kind of a game of what if. The, the Salton Sea beaches really are like that oh, wow. um, because as this sea has shrunk and shrunk and receded and receded, um, as the water evaporates, the toxins concentrate, the salts and the um, pollution and everything concentrated to such a level that it killed all the fish and it kills the birds that come to it. Like it's a poison water. Mm-hmm. And so all these dead things 
as the water recedes further, it just reveals more and more of the bones of all everything that died in this water that became toxic. Mm. And so if you look up pictures of the Salton Sea, which I spent a lot of time doing, like I said, a research <laughs> junkie, you can see images of these sandy beaches that are just comprised almost entirely of bones. And some of it has been exposed long enough that the bones have become sand, like rock becomes sand or shells become sand. Um, and some of it is still uh, crispy. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at pictures right now. And yes, I can see there are beaches that look very familiar as far as like lots of broken shells that you walk on and they're, they're painful to, to, to do so. And then the, the, it ranges from that to where you can see yeah, intact spinal columns of fish and every now and then something a little more complete looking. Yeah, no, that's pretty. Uh... And there's actually some of these kind of bombed out structures and chairs and rusty chairs yeah. and stuff sitting on the edge that, I mean, I look at this and I totally, I, you know, I feel the story that you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> There's no real law here. There's no real justice. The stuff that happens almost feels like the old West. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're going to keep running their, you know, the hotel there, but the only people who are coming are people who are seeking out this nightmare landscape, which might not always be the people you want to welcome into your home. Well, that's really cool that there's really nothing that happens in it that couldn't happen with just plain old uh, human greed. Yeah. It's, you know, there's hints of, of that kind of weirdness or almost, you know, surrealism in there, but it, no, it's a lot of it is very plausible. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is, I always spotted it as emotionally plausible. I didn't quite realize how much of a grounded world you had set it in. There is some commentary there about, you know, um, you know, who is it that gets left behind? You know, it's the housekeeper and her children and, you know, her feeling of, you know, being driven to work even when the work is gone and how that is, you know, ultimately what kills her, you know, so there's some commentary there about classism and some racism also. So I definitely wanted to bring that into the story as well, because, you know, that's, you know, she had nowhere else to go. And the, and the two kids, the siblings, uh, the brother definitely seems like the more erratic of the two. And he kind of pays the consequences for, for being that way. Yeah. And I, I really think the way the story presents that that moment at the end, the 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 main character, she's in this weird spot of not really knowing who to trust. Mm -hmm. I mean, she seems pretty self-reliant and and the brother has been here all along for her to kind of lean on and maybe believe that they had each other's backs. But he was also kind of a thorn in her side. So. So, yeah, she's in a she's in a very precarious moment at the end. But again, as with many of your stories, maybe maybe this precarious moment is a is a liberated moment. I definitely wanted it that, you know, the character's choices to kind of be hanging a little bit at the end there. But I also feel like, you know, the main character, her emotional investment, I think, you know, is is strong enough that she's she's a match for her environment even in the way that the the death of the brother is sort of revealed there's a kind of like okay now i have to deal with this sort of feeling in the in the narration it's not it's not like particularly thrown off by it but you get the feeling if this person's been in this environment for this long they would be sort of accepting of the yeah the harshness of it she's pragmatic yeah right <laughs> Here's another story. Now, this one is one is almost like talk about we, we mentioned a revenge tale earlier in terms of underwater thing. Um, 
And, um, but I think this story, Golden Avery, is like one of the more like disquieting stories in the book because it presents a sort of narrator protagonist who we relate to them because they've been bullied and body shamed early in the story. But then what progresses from that? I mean, it's a short, short story, mm -hmm. um, but it really does paint a scenario where it like closes this, this, uh, and this is where I was saying before about nastiness. Like this is a really sort of a mean story in a, in a lot of ways, but it, it also fits that thing of taking something that is like real and then casting it in this truly horrific situation that these that these two women find themselves in. I just wanted to, I, you know, to me, like the inspiration behind that, because I do think that I spent the first half of it going, oh, this feels like the kind of thing where this uh, this this bullied person is going to have their revenge. And then when it turns into what it turns into, it's like, oh, man, this goes beyond the bullied person's revenge. This is some new like these two characters are trapped in a like a cycle of, yeah. of sheer horror and, and torture of each other. So tell me a little bit about what was in your head with Golden Avery. Well, the opening scene of that story is actually uh, a story that my friend, one, a friend of mine from long ago told me about something she had experienced that it was a moment. She said that where her eating disorder began Ugh. and it hurt me like to hear her say that, like, you know, I hurt for her so much hearing that story. And so I wanted to write <laughs> a revenge story just to get it out of my system. Yeah. And it has the feel of catharsis, honestly. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't peg it as personal necessarily, but that is a very real kind of horror that is being perpetuated by Avery in the story. And then, yeah. then to, for it to turn into a sort of a more heightened horror is is almost like you like i said you're completing a loop of, of sorts yeah and it's it's really i mean it's not just about bullying and body shaming in general it's really about you know um you know toxic friendships in a way because these two began with one bullying the other and then they become friends but their friendship is very much um breaking each other down yes and you know, it's not a happy story. <laughs> no, it's really it's not. It's really not. I mean, I, honestly, I would say that one of the reasons why it was interesting to me is because of the fact that as as nasty and gross as some of your stories are, this was the, one of the only ones that really was unpleasant. Yeah. You know, like that really, because again, because of the stuff you're writing about is so real. Yeah. Well, the main character is is also in love with Avery. And I, you know, I try to make that clear. There's a, there's a pining for this person who, who's, who's being so cruel to you, which again, again, it, I mean, it made me emotionally uncomfortable from the beginning. Yeah. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to really just feel awful the whole time. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only other one that I would say has those same elements, although I didn't um, get as graphic quite as much but kind of dug into that same that headspace is in uh scavengers there's that yes yes that bitterness too and that revenge element and um you know mutual destructions <laughs> mallow stepped back from the stone table in darcy's trust form the old woman's skin glowed red where she'd been dragged up the trail her knees and elbows wept almost as much as her face did, though none of it moved Mallow as much as it might have once. She stood as cold and resolute as the funeral rocks that dug into the bones of Darcy's back. She pulled the bright red slippers from Darcy's feet and hurled them over the cliffside to be lost among the boulders or tangled in the trees. Their red would fade to gray, 
just like the meat on the rocks. That one is a really cool one because of the way that it sets up this sort of... I mean, again, by the time you get to the end, you kind of understand the mechanics of the the monstrousness, the, the whatever the kind of... The, the weirdness that's happening here, the way these birds um, uh, dispose of mm -hmm. things, people, anything you put on the top of the hill. Now you're going to tell me you researched this and it's something that really happened? Yes, it, I have researched <laughs> it. It is an actual practiced funerary... Uh, procedure in many parts of the world, actually. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Like, we're a little precious about corpses. Yeah, where there's mountainous terrain and you can't bury someone, Yeah. then it, you do sky burials. And, yeah, look up sky burials. They're, uh, they're a thing. Well, I love that because that's yet another case of you taking something that's real and turning it into something. There's a little bit of a fable quality to it because it doesn't quite feel like our world. Yeah them escaping at the end feels right to me <laughs> like i yeah, like yeah. this person kind of sneaking <laughs> off into the shadows being like oh boy that could have gone worse for me and yet this <laughs> situation complicity there yeah <laughs> well i don't want to keep you forever so we'll talk about just one more story this one is one that really i enjoyed it a lot but it, it confounds me too it's called magnifying glass and it is the story of a woman and, and her son who arrive at this new home, whether it's a new rental that's very temporary or it's a new place they're going to try to put down roots. It's not quite clear, but they're under less than ideal circumstances. And there's no love lost between them, at least from the son to the mom, it seems. Yeah. And it's just a very stressful situation. And there are these manifestations of something really scary and supernatural. But I don't think the story really gives us enough clues to piece together what that story is. <laughs> <laughs> so we're dealing much more with the the mother's emotional reaction to to the the situation that she's in, which is you know, uh, like I said, extremely pressurized. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the the basic premise of that one is you know, there's this mother has um, kidnapped her own son from his father. You know, they're separated, and so they're hiding because you know, obviously, what she's done is is kidnapping, and. Um, you know, so he's uncertain about, you know, whether, you know, he, he's supposed to be there or not. And there's tension in their relationship, obviously, because, you know, one thing that I kind of leave hanging there is there's got to be some reason why she had to kidnap him. And so we don't really know, you know, was she rescuing him from his father or is was there a reason that she was not allowed to have him? And so I wanted to kind of leave that question unsolved so that it would create the tension there. But as the story progresses and there is this, you know, haunting element, you know, they've, they're in this house where, you know, the previous owner's belongings are still there and, you know, there's, you know, he's, his, his children are dead, you know, so there's, these handprints that appear on the windows that there's something that's inside the glass itself. You know, it's fucking handprints, Sarah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> this is the moment where the character goes, Oh no, there's something happening. Like there's, there's no logical explanation for those handprints. You know, you could almost yeah. say up to that point, everything else is like a trick of the light, but this is like, well, no, there's there something or someone was here. We turned our head and we turned it back, you know, like while we weren't looking, something happened and while we were here. And that is incredibly horrifying. I think on so many levels, Well, the handprints were inspired by an actual moment in my own life where um, I had, you know, just moved into my first house and I was, you know, doing my move-in cleaning like you do. And um, there was a handprint on the second story window and it was kind of a small handprint. 
And I was like, how the hell do you get like a child's handprint on the second story window? And so, you know, I tried washing it off from the inside and didn't wash off. And I tried washing it off from the outside and it didn't wash off. And you're like, well, shit. And there's this moment (laughs) of just cognitive blur where it takes me a few seconds to remember, oh, these are double pane windows. When they were putting the windows in, somebody touched one of the windows before it went in. And that handprint will be there forever now. But for a split second, you're like, okay, it's happening yeah, to for, me. <laughs> for just a second, there is a handprint inside the glass. Mm. And you kind of have that moment of uncanniness. Yeah. And so I wanted to take that moment and see if I could sustain it for someone. <laughs> that moment I felt and just like, let's make this last for you know, a handful of pages instead of those few seconds that it took me to realize what reality was. Um so yeah, it's that that's the haunting element I wanted to bring into it. Then, you know, as as the story goes on, you know, we have the mother, you know, remembering this boy's childhood, but her memories almost becoming reality as he in a way regresses before her eyes. You know, she wants that time back with him mm-hmm. of of his youth, you know, before he became this a rebellious teenager who doesn't really like her. This is a desperate, urgent person who who we're witnessing go through something. Doesn't seem like the kid makes it out of that. Or if they do, they're going to be very badly hurt by all that glass raining down. I don't know if that was meant to be the interpretation at the end. Uh, yeah, no, he doesn't make it. <laughs> okay. Didn't think <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> no, her her wish to steal his life back by regressing his age. Um yeah, is ultimately destructive for for everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a 12-year-old, and I, I do find myself sometimes, you know, wanting to reminisce with him. And we've done that a lot. But I realize at a certain point, it, it starts to sound like we're saying, uh, we liked you better yeah. <laughs> when you were sweeter and when you were simpler. I have a 13-year-old and a 5-year-old, and we have been here for six months together now, almost 24-7. Mm. And, you know, and it's this contrast too because i have this you know young adult um and then i have the you know the sweet child so and they are very very different and it's a different parent style for both of them oh, and i bet and yeah in throw in covid and geez I, yeah who knows well before we go i just wanted to ask you one other thing uh, not really related to your stories just to the the field in general um, but in, in recent years, I've been trying to do something that I heard someone refer to as decolonizing my book collection, Absolutely. meaning kind of like looking at the amount of old white men represented there right. and trying to look for other types of voices, um, to, to get my horror fix from. Yeah. And I got to say, there have been so many great discoveries, so many great writers, uh, you know, you amongst them, um, I just wondered if you share my impression that that horror is kind of having a little bit of a golden age right now in terms of the diverse group of people that are uh, producing fiction. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The the best stuff I've read in the last year, um, you know, they've been, you know, by authors of color, you know, LGBTQI authors, you know, it's like, and I think it's, you know, because there is this movement of decolonizing the genre in general and that that publishers are finally picking up the pace and really promoting these works more and picking them up more. And it's good. It's better for all of us because, you know, that's, there's so much more available, so many more worlds to live. And um, 
it's just so good and so exciting. And I love it all so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like that feels like a good place to wrap it up. This has been such a pleasure, Sarah. Um, I, uh, I, I mean, it, you've been, you've been very open and I really appreciate that you've, you've sort of let me um, encourage you to decode your stories up to a point. I've loved that. This is the first time I've done, you know, a chat where that was one of the aims. You know, a lot of people, you know, we want to chat about writing process or or things like that. But actually getting to talk through the stories has been really fun. <laughs> Thank you. Are you active on social media? Do you want people to find you there? Yeah, I am on Twitter and Instagram as at inkwellmonster as one word. And my website is inkwellmonster.wordpress.com. And that's where I generally you know, post new info and what I'm doing, what's coming out and that sort of thing. And that was season one of Skirt, folks. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed making it. Uh, and particularly, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think it's one of the best. So um, please do check out Sarah Reed's work. She's got the short story collection, Out of Water. She's got the novel, The Bone Weaver's Orchard, which is is going in my stack ASAP. And then she also has just uh, had a story called The Hope Chest. She mentioned that printed in the volume. I've got it right here. The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 12 edited by Ellen Datlow. Uh, there's some great authors in this. I haven't read it all yet, but uh, The Hope Chest is, is definitely worth it. Um, and there's also a great uh, Stephen Graham Jones uh, story in here. Um, and uh, Paul Tremblay I haven't read yet. So anyway, some great names. Uh, I would also like to mention that the really awesome music that you've heard throughout this episode uh, is provided by Daniel Ferris, friend of me and hopefully future friend of the show. It was an awesome thing to have his music for this conversation because I, I knew his vibe would fit the vibe of what I had in mind for uh, Sarah's episode. That's all right now. You know, if you like this podcast, you can find more like it at FYIZ. Just search for those four letters wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope to see you soon with more episodes. But until then, I think we should get out of here. <laughs>